I know sometimes you as adults see the little kids leave and you want to leave too. I know that. I know that. You're thinking they're having fun and they're going to get snacks. Uh, and I want you to know if you think they're going to have more fun than us. Well, you're right. But anyhow, you're adults. And so just get over it. And here we are in big church, okay? We are glad that you're here. hope that you've had uh, a good Thanksgiving and we're able to spend time with family and uh, to acknowledge uh, God and uh, what the scripture says in James 1 that every good and perfect gift is from above. I didn't mean to turn the corner so quick this morning when I began to talk about Christmas, but that's the reality uh, that our focus as soon as we clean up the dishes from Thanksgiving, we're headed to Christmas, to Black Friday. Amen? Which Black Friday is no longer Black Friday. It actually starts Thursday night. Anyhow, that has nothing to do with, I, with what I want to say about this morning. Uh, throughout the, the letter that Paul writes to the Philippians, he talks about the theme of joy and certainly part of the point that Paul is making to the Philippians and the reason we are spending this time as a church body in Philippians is the fact that joy is an individual choice for us that's part of it regardless of what our circumstances are uh, the challenge of the scripture is that we would rejoice in the Lord always. And so, part of uh, the challenge as we listen to these words is that I need to respond, regardless of what life sends my way, with joy because of what God has done and who He is. And that I'm a child of His. And I know where my eternal home is is so joy is an individual choice but joy is more than that the only way I could express it is to say this that joy is a team sport I don't know brother Cody I'm sorry that's another sports you know metaphor Paul makes the point in his words to the Philippians as a church as a whole that joy is a team sport. In fact, that, that as we not only choose joy individually, but then we come together in unity, there is an intensification in the joy. There is a joy that we can experience as a group that we can never experience as an individual that's the sense that I want you to get this morning that joy is, is more than just an individual choice. It is a, it is a team sport. It is something we, we choose and we experience at a greater level when we experience it together. There are hints in Paul's words that he writes to the Philippians. There are hints in the first three chapters, there are hints of disunity in the church at Philippi. 
And we've kind of hit on these. And if you've been here for all these sermons, there might be say, I'm, you might have heard me say, now, I'm going to talk about that later. So if you're here this morning, this is later. Now is the time. There have been little hints, and I, I didn't really want to get into it because it is a sermon in and all of itself. But there's been little things that Paul has, has said. So in Philippians 2.14, when he says, Do all things without complaining and disputing. Do all things without complaining and disputing. It's not just that Paul was kind of putting out some, some thoughts. No, there was something he was thinking about. There was something going on. He wasn't speaking theoretically. He was speaking practically because there was complaining and there was disputing going on. Earlier in that chapter when he says, let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, what Paul is <laughs> insinuating is no, there are some things that are going on from selfish ambition and conceit. When he says then in verse 4 of chapter 2, let each one of you look not only to, for his own interest, but also for the interest of others. No, the reality is, do you understand? He doesn't just say these things to say these things. He's, he, he's, he's got a point he's making. There is something practically going on in the church of Philippi. And so there's been these little hints as he writes this, just little statements he made, nothing big. But there have been hints of disunity. And when we think about joy as a team sport, we realize that disunity erodes team morale. I don't have time to use a modern-day example because most of my sports teams are right there. Other than the Dallas Cowboys, everybody else is in the midst of this with low team morale. Let me remind you, I went to Baylor University. It's bad being a Baylor Bear right now. We've moved on to men's basketball, Brother Melvin. <laughs> We have forsaken the football season. We are forgetting those things which are behind. We are striving forward to those things which are ahead. And you know the thing about disunity eroding team morale, it only takes a few people. But you can take a few people and you can destroy team morale. On the positive side, I want you to know this morning that unity intensifies joy. When a sports team, a church, whoever, whatever organization you are part of is united, the joy of the individuals will be intensified by the unity of the group. But we're not here to talk about sports teams. We're here to talk about the church. Jesus prayed for us in the upper room 
only recorded in John. In John 17, verse 20, he says, I do not pray for these alone. That means That meant the men that were gathered in that room. But also for those who will believe in me through their word. That includes us today. And this was his prayer. John 17, 21. That they all may be one. As you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me. Jesus prays for unity for us. It is a unity of, I believe, of purpose and of the Spirit in which we carry out that purpose. I believe we need to be unified as the followers of Jesus in the purpose of the Father and to do it in the Spirit of the Son who gave Himself and died for His own wants and wishes and His own will and submitted Himself in a sacrificial spirit that God the Father's mission might be accomplished. In Philippians chapter 4, the first three verses, Paul turns a corner in the words that he writes and he says, Therefore, my beloved and longed-for brethren, my joy and crown, so Stand fast in the Lord, beloved. I implore Euodia and I implore Syndache to be of the same mind in the Lord. And I I urge you also, true companion, help these women who labored with me in the gospel, with Clement also and the rest of my fellow workers, whose names are in the book of life. I really didn't start out this week to preach on verses 1 through 3. But I really had to stop there. And as I studied this and, you know, I asked God, what is it that we learn from this about joy It is that truth that unity intensifies joy. Paul knew that the church at Philippi had to be united. And if they were united, their individual choices of joy would be intensified, would be taken to another level. Paul speaks in verse 1, and I just want want to go uh, phrase by phrase this morning through those three verses. Paul, in verse 1, speaks of his personal connection with the Philippians. And he uses the term, my beloved, longed-for brethren, my crown, my joy, my crown. And then he says beloved. He doubles down on beloved. He says it at the start. He says it at the end. So Paul speaks of his personal connection with the, the Philippians and the pers- bo- personal bond that he had with them. 
so he uses beloved twice. And then he says, long for brethren. He's already spoken of this long for. Same phrase. In chapter 1, verse 8, he says, For God is my witness how greatly I long for you all with the affection of Jesus Christ. So not only my beloved, those whom I love, but I long for you. I want to be with you. I'm in, I'm in prison in Rome. You were in Philippi some 700 miles as the crow flies. We're separated. I, I long for you. He calls them brethren. And so really... I mean, the word brethren, I mean, we, I mean, obviously that's kind of an old English phrase that we would just say brothers. And probably if you have a modern translation today or more modern translation, it's going to say brothers. Because, because what is the context? When Paul is talking about unity, he's saying we're a family, we're brothers, we're sisters in Christ. That's who we are. We talk about that as our, as our church, that we are a family of God for your family. We are family here. We are a spiritual family. And how are we a spiritual family? Well, we have the same father. And we came to the Father through the Son who gave His life for us. And we've been bought by the blood of Jesus. We've become a part of a family. We have been born again into God's family. There is something that connects us here. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, that bonds us together. We are family. We're brothers. We're sisters in Christ. And, and Paul's, that's what Paul is saying to the Philippians. I mean, he's going to talk about unity. He's going to talk about disunity and he's going to talk about unity. But he uses the phrase to talk about us as a family. He talks about, he says, you are my joy. You are the ones that knowing that you walk beside me and that you love me and that you care for me, you support me and you're, you're working alongside me in the gospel. He says, that gives me joy. You are my joy. But he says, also, not only are you my joy, but you're my crown. There's two words in the Greek for crown. One is Stephanos. So if you're, you've got Stephen in your name or Stephanie, it comes from the word crown. But there's another word that's, that's diadem in the Greek. And um, the diadem means a crown that a king would wear. Okay, a diadem. I'm in authority. That's not the word. The word here is Stephanos. It's the crown that was given to the victor of the race when they had won the, like a, we would think of a trophy. You got the crown, the wreath uh, that symbolized the victory. So he says, you are... You are that when I think of you and the life that you've lived and the ministry, he said, you are my crown. You are the very statement that my labor has not been in vain. But the most significant phrase in verse 1, so Paul has all these words that denote his personal connection with the Philippians, but the most significant words in verse 1 are, Stand fast. You're my beloved. You're my joy. You're my crown. You're my longed-for brethren. So stand fast in the Lord. Now you've got to get this. 
stand fast is the word that was used of a soldier in battle, in military formation, who stood his ground in the midst of the attack. That's this word, stand fast. Actually, Paul has already used this in chapter 1, verse 27. He says, at the end of 27, he says, that you stand fast in one spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. And so not only in verse 127 does he say stand fast, but he also says striving together, which is the midst of the conflict, the struggle. Chapter 4, verse 1, after all the words that he uses of their personal connection, he says, my challenge to you is that you would stand your ground in the midst of the battle. But there is something very significant here. You've you got to get that military imagery. It is not, this is it, it is not one soldier standing their ground. It is a soldier in the midst of a military formation. I am not standing alone. My band of brothers are with me. We are standing together. The picture here is a picture of a unit, not just an individual soldier. And so you understand when we talk about being brothers and sisters, being family, and we can talk about being in the midst of the battle and the things that life may bring, we're, yes, there is a, there is a, there is a challenge that, yes, I choose joy individually for that, but there is something more significant than that in that we stand together. And as we stand together, our joy is intensified. There is power in the unit and knowing that my brother has my back. Now, uh, David Shaw is my guy that I go to because we've just been to Africa and we have countless hours of doing nothing else other than just yak in our jaws, quite honestly. And David can do it. And then when he gets tired, he just tag teams me and I just blab about whatever. We're just... But, you know... Uh, and I know David's been in a Marine, and I know he's had experiences, and others of you have had experiences that I, I wouldn't even understand the intensity of that. Um, but maybe we can project as best we can the thought of being in the midst of a battle and the challenge to stand fast. Stand with your brothers. In the spiritual realm with your brothers and your sisters, stand your ground in the midst of of the conflict and finding a power and in the Christian realm a joy that comes from that. It is interesting that Paul's discussion is a call for unity and he uses the phrase stand fast in 4.1 but when he uses the same phrase in 127 he speaks about unity. He says that you stand fast in one spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. When he thinks of standing fast, he thinks of standing as, as a unit and the need to be unified as a military unit. And that's when we come to verse 2. If Paul, in the midst of the first three chapters, has been hinting at disunity, when we come to verse 2, 
of chapter 4, Paul just names names. In fact, it's a little, I don't know if you're just thinking about reading the letter. You have to think about this. That Epaphroditus, who had gone to Paul and ministered to him on behalf of the Philippians, Paul writes this letter. And Epaphroditus takes this letter and he carries it back. I mean, it's about a 40-day journey, is what I'm told. And they stand up in church and they begin to read the letter. Thank you, G. Oh, Brother Paul, you're just blessing my heart. Bless. And I think you came to chapter 4, verse 2, and it just got quiet. Hmm. Because he says, I implore Euodia and I implore Syndache to be of the same mind in the Lord. First Baptist Philippi that Sunday, you could have heard pins drop. It's kind of interesting the way he says it. He says, I implore Euodia, and I implore Syndache. And I thought, well, that's kind of a strange way. Why did he just implore Euodia and Syndache? Now, this is, this is just a preacher's think on it. The, I, looked, I looked in the Greek, and the verb is used before each woman's name. I implore Euodia, and I implore Syndache. It was as if they have their own separate admonishments. You know what I pictured? Sister Euodia sat on that side of the sanctuary and Sister Syndicate sat on this side of the sanctuary. I implore Euodia. I implore Syndicate. It was not that he implored both of them individually. I mean, together. He had his own separate admonishment for each one of them. Um, when we read the history of the Philippian church, Acts 16, we see that Lydia, a woman, is the first convert to the faith in Philippi. And so we have to surmise that uh, women played a prominent role in the church Philippi. We do not know anything else other than this verse about Euodia and Syndache. Um, but when you read what Paul writes, you come to the conclusion that these two ladies were the source of disunity. I got to thinking, if the problems were beyond them, then Paul would not have named names. I'm saying if there were 10 people, if there were 20 people, if there was 50 people, that were in disunity, Paul would have just said, now those of y'all who are blah, 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 he would have said that. But for him to call name names is to denote that, no, these two ladies are the source of disunity. If they weren't, he wouldn't have called names. He would have spoken to a group. Now, we don't know 
what the problems were, except we would have to assume that the statements about disunity early in the letter alluded to, hinted at, Euodia and Syndicate. So when he says in verse chapter 2, verse 3, let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, hmm, I think we know what was going on in Euodia and Syndicate's life. When he says in chapter 2, verse 14, do all things without complaining and disputing, we have to say, oh, so obviously it is clear that Euodia and Syndicate were complaining and disputing. They were the source of disunity. And here's the reality, and I said this earlier. It only takes a few to erode team morale. This was a serious enough problem that Paul named names. And, and notice what his challenge was. He says, I implore you, Odia, comma, doesn't have it in my Bible, but for emphasis. And I implore Syndicate to be of the same mind in the Lord. Paul's statement His phrase that he uses of unity is to have the same mind. He has said this over and over. 127, that you stand fast in one spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. In chapter 2, verse 2, fulfill my joy by being like-minded having the same love, being of one accord and of one mind. In chapter, verse 5 of chapter 2, let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus. Chapter 3, verse 15, he says, Therefore, let us as many as are mature have this mind, this mind. And if in anything else, you think otherwise, God will reveal this also to you. Verse 16, Nevertheless, to the, to the degree that we have already attained, let us walk by the same rule. Let us be of the same mind. I said this in 316 when I preached that sermon. Whoop, but I'm sure. Whoop. Let us walk by the same rule. That word for rule is the, is the word that was used of a military formation. Walk in March Marching step. Walk as a unit in unison. March together. So that was even a military. So Paul has used this concept of the same mind, one spirit, um, being like-minded, one accord. All of these words that he uses interchangeably to speak of what the challenge is in 4.2 when he says, I implore you, Odia, and I implore Syndicate to be of the same mind. Same mind. There's probably a lot that goes into having the same mind. 
But the two things I specifically thought of is that we need to have... Unity means that we have the same purpose and we have the same spirit or attitude in which we carry out that purpose. Hmm. Unity does not mean that we are uniform, that we are all alike, but there are some things that we need to have in common and we need to agree upon and be unified and our purpose is one of those things. And Paul has talked about the gospel and uh, Paul has emphasized that if that we are giving our lives for the gospel and for God's kingdom, that we sell ourselves out. And it is about expanding His kingdom. It is about spreading the gospel. It is obviously what Paul would say in Matthew twenty-eight nineteen that we make disciples. That is our, our mission. That is what we are here for. So, so what does it mean? What does unity in the church mean? Part of what it means is to be unified, to have the same mind in our purpose. If we are a military unit, we have to know what the mission is. It is not up to me as an individual soldier to say, well, I think today we ought to go and do this. You listen for orders. And as a unit, you march together and you accomplish the mission that you have been given. There must be unity and purpose to have the same mind. Hmm. Our purpose is to make disciples. First Baptist Church is not a country club. We are not a social club. We are not a service club. We are an organization of people who have been bought by the blood of Jesus that are here to expand His kingdom and to make other disciples who will make other disciples who will make other disciples until Jesus comes back or comes to get us. That's it. There is power when there is unity in the church related to its purpose. But I think it's more than that. I'm not so sure from what Paul says in verse 3 that Euodia and Syndike weren't in agreement over the purpose because they labored together for the gospel, he says in verse 3. I think for Euodia and Syndike it was a matter of personality And I think that's the reason Paul writes the things that he writes in his letter. Because not only is it unity and purpose to have the same mind, but it also must be the same mind in the spirit or the attitude in which we carry out that mission. When I'm a part of a military unit, not only must I have, must we all must have, the same mission, the same purpose. But we also each individually must know that I am dying to my own wants and wishes and I have got my brother's back and I have died to myself for a greater cause than myself. There is an attitude in which we carry out the mission that, that maybe I can't describe in any other way than dying to what I want and surrendering myself to the will of God. I believe that's the reason. Paul chapter 2. Now brother Cody got to preach chapter 2. 1 through 11. I like gave him the best verses. I was gone to Africa and he said. What's your next verses? And I said it's 1 through 11. But I really wanted to cover those myself. And he said no I want those. 
And then he's preaching on selfish ambition and all that. I'm thinking, well, well God's going to convict him in the midst of that. But that's all right. No. It, I mean, it's one of the... I really, I really said to him, I said, man, my next verses are 2, 1 through 11. I said, man, you, you just start that thing. It'll preach itself. I mean, that's just like good stuff. And he did an awesome job that day. I listened to it. Um, I have some critique notes for you. But anyhow, we'll, we'll talk about that later. It's the reason Paul says... He has that whole section. He says in verse 2 of chapter 2, Fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord and of one mind. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. And then he says in verse 5, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Who is the example of all examples of the Spirit by which we are to carry out the mission that He has given us? It's Jesus. And Paul goes into this. Who being in the form of God did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Paul says, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. He's speaking to the Philippians. If you want to be unified, you, you, you have to be more than unified in your purpose. It has to be the spirit in which you carry out the purpose that I'm dying to myself for the common, the cause of Christ and the common good that I might, we might be joined together. Even if you have a great team that has a mission of winning, but players are playing for themselves, the team morale breaks down. It's not just a common mission, but it is the spirit in which we carry out that mission that is a part of the same mind. And I think for Euodia and Syndicate, there were personality things. And there was enough of a disunity between those two that it affected the whole and Paul names names. And he tells them to come to the place where they have the same mind in the Lord. Because in the Lord we have our mission, our purpose, and we have the spirit in which we carry out that purpose. In verse 3, he says, I urge you also, true companion... You kind of have to read this closely. Paul is speaking to an individual here. I urge you, if he wanted to use the plural you, he would have said y'all. I implore y'all. That's what we do where we live. But I'm telling you, when I look at the original language, he said, I implore you. He's speaking to one individual and he calls them true companion he doesn't name the person's name but he has this phrase true companion literally it means genuine yoke fellow that word companion is is the mm, is the the word that is used uh someone that you are tied together like two oxen that were tied together by a yoke, a yoke fellow. 
We're pulling the plow together. There's two of us. You're my yoke fellow. That's this word. The only person I know that this could be is the pastor of the church at Philippi. I don't know who else, why he wouldn't name his name, why he would use this phrase for him. But I really believe what he does is he says to the pastor, and I urge you also, true companion, help these women. The pastor is challenged by Paul to help these women to have the same mind. He describes the women at the end of verse 3 and he says, who labored with me in the gospel. Now it's interesting to me that the word labored is past tense. What Paul is saying, when I was there, Euodia and Syntyche, they were right alongside of me and they were working for the, for the kingdom of God and for His purposes. But when you say it's, past, it's very intentional when Paul says it was past tense, you labored. It's not that you have been laboring, you're still laboring today, or you are laboring today. No, you labored. That was something that happened in the past. Apparently denotes is not in the present. Who labored with me in the gospel. So Paul says, no, they, they labored alongside of me in the gospel. He says, with Clement also. We also do not know who Clement is. The only thing I can surmise is that the church is about 10 years old. I believe Clement must have been the first pastor of that church. And Paul says, when we got this whole thing started, Euodia and Syndicate, they were, walking, they were working alongside me and also Clement. They would have known that was the pastor. I, I think he's probably died by this point. And the new pastor is brother true companion or genuine yoke fellow, whatever you want to call him. So these women worked with Paul. They worked with Clement, I believe the first pastor of the church, and the rest of my fellow workers, the rest of the people in that church, these women worked alongside, he says, whose names are in the book of life. I don't have time this morning to talk about the book of life. Um, other than to say this, it, it occurs many times in the book of Revelation. Um, it is a phrase that denotes, it is, it is an allusion to a city having a register of its citizens. Uh, the city of Philippi would have had a written ledger, register. These are the citizens. These are the ones who have the rights and privilege of citizenship in this place. There would have been a record. And so when Paul or John or the gospel is presented, they talk about the citizens of heaven, that our names are written. What is the name of the book? It is the book of life. It's those who have life. Their names are recorded. It was like the old song we sang at Calvary Baptist Church, Seymour, Texas. God keeps a record. We don't sing that much anymore. But anyhow, that's the only church I ever... You know, you go to a new church and you go, I was raised Baptist. I don't remember this one. But let me tell you, at Calvary Baptist Church, Seymour, Texas, God keeps a record. He knows who are His. And that's what's denoted. And it, it speaks of the security of the believer whose names are written in the book of life. We know who their citizen, where our citizenship is, and that will never change. God, is, we were born again into the family. We've become citizens 
of a kingdom that is not of this world. Our names are written there. And someday when we go there, they'll look in the ledger. And there's my name. Yes. This is their home. Let them in. We are all, it denotes not only a security of the believer, but it speaks of a unity that all of us are citizens of the same kingdom. Unity intensifies joy. And the challenge for the Philippian church is the same challenge for us today that we must come together in unity of purpose and the spirit with which we carry out that purpose. That there is no other purpose than for us to expand the kingdom of God, to proclaim the gospel and to make disciples until Jesus comes. And the spirit that we are to conduct ourselves with is the spirit of Jesus who left the privilege of heaven and emptied himself and took on the form of a servant and died to himself, not just a death, but a death on the cross that the Father's redemptive purposes might be carried out. That kind of sacrificial die-to-self spirit is the spirit that must exemplify itself in the body of Christ as we carry out the mission. If you would stand with me this morning, let me pray. Father, today we, uh, we pray in the words of Jesus. That you would make us one. One in purpose and one in spirit. And so, Father, today we surrender ourselves uh, to you and to what it is that you want to do in our life as a church, what you want to do in my life individually. And, Father, I pray that as we as individuals die to ourselves, that, Father, you would bind us together in a power that the world would see. And as Jesus prayed, Father, that the world would believe that you are his Son that has been sent to be the Savior of the world. So, Father, I pray that the, the world and those around us would see same mind in us. So Father, today we pray for us the decisions that need to be made, our own points of, of surrender. We pray that you would use this time, this time of decision, for your glory and for your honor. We pray it all in Jesus' name. Bless the Lord of my soul.